1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: When I was doing field work in China in 2012, I met a family, we'll call them the Wong family, to protect their real identities. They ran a little shop not too far from where they lived in a city that's on China's east coast. In late 2011, the man in the family, I'll call him Mr. Wong, was injured pretty seriously and couldn't work as a result of that. His wife uh, became the sole breadwinner, and she had to care for both Mr. Wang and her nine-year-old son. And she did what many would do in her situation. She turned to the Chinese government. In particular, she requested assistance from the d program, which is a common term for China's minimum livelihood guarantee scheme, or 中国最低生活保障. Unfortunately for Mrs. Wong, when she tried to apply for the benefits, the program administrators didn't even let her apply. They just turned her away. They said her family had no chance of getting the benefits and applying would just be a waste of time. They told her instead she could take on another second or a third job. She could turn to her extended family and relatives to borrow money from and to get support from. This was a story that I actually heard a lot when I was doing field work. But what was striking is that really close by to where the Wong family lived, just like something like a 10-15 minute walk in another neighborhood, same city, I met a different family, we'll call them the Lee family, who recently qualified for D-ball. And what's striking is that program administrators, instead of turning them away, were very proactive in helping them obtain the DBAO benefits. They walked them through all of the paperwork, made sure nothing was missing, uh, and they got the benefits, which amounted to a few hundred yuan a month, as well as other subsidies and benefits like housing subsidies, free health exams, reduced utilities costs, other intermittent cash and in-kind uh, benefits and they were extremely helpful for the Lee family, who are in in a similar economic situation as the Wong family. Mrs. Lee was the only one working, and they had to support a school age child. So both of these families faced really severe financial difficulties. The adults relied on part-time, informal, sometimes seasonal jobs that didn't provide any health or other benefits. Both had a young child to support. They lived in the same district of the same city and they were seeking funds from the same pool. Neither had any particular sort of special relationships with the government. They, They didn't have any family or friends with anyone in the local government or know any local administrators. So the question that motivates it's my book is what accounts for their very different treatment that they receive.
1: Okay. Thanks, Jen. So um, hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books in Economics. It's a pod, we're a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today, who I just had uh, give you a little cold open uh, for fun, is Jennifer Pan. She's an Assistant Professor in the Communications Department at Stanford University. She did her PhD at Harvard University in political science and has been a pathbreaker in applying new data science methods to the study of politics, especially with uh, Chinese language text data. So to to back up a little bit from from the story she just told us, um, here in the US, uh, there's a lot of talk about things like universal basic income. uh, And in the world of development economics, there's been a lot of research done on conditional cash transfers and how that relates to unconditional cash transfers as a tool to help people get out of poverty, um, so today what we're going to learn about is China's sort of version of these things—the minimum, the minimum livelihood guarantee. Um, the full name in Chinese is the Zhui Zhi Bao um, but everyone calls it the DIBao for short. Um, if you know China, of course, you won't be surprised to learn that power and politics matter as much as poverty in determining who gets access to these funds. Um, So Jen, before we get back to explaining the the situation of the Wang and the Li families, why don't you tell us more about your background, how you started working on China and on this research topic?
0: Yeah, so I came into the PhD program at Harvard after working for a number of years, uh, mostly in management consulting, but also in economic development. And a lot of that time was spent working in China where most of my work was focused on public health, um, but also dealing with issues of inequality, redistribution, and economic development. And so going into my PhD program, this question of redistribution, social policies uh, was something that always interested me. A lot of my other research has gone in a different direction, focused more on kind of information, controls, media, et cetera. But going into the PhD, one of my core interests was to explore this aspect of Chinese politics um, and and what accounts for the policies that were put forth, how they were implemented, and how distribution was actually happening on the ground.
1: Okay. So um, for this book, you used uh, a lot of different um, approaches. Can you uh, give us a, a quick overview? And we'll go into more of the Details later, but just like how did you how did you go about researching this topic? What are some of the different um, yeah kinds of information and data that you that you gathered and used?
0: I used a lot of different um, types of uh, sources, including uh, a, a lot of um, field interviews, uh, analysis of speeches and policy documents at all levels of government. Uh, but in addition, I conducted online field experiment among. Uh, all of China's county governments, um, as well as an original survey of 100 neighborhoods in a few cities uh, throughout China. And then, on the kind of more computational side of things, I analyzed all announcements related to DBAL um, over a few year period and analyzed millions of social media posts to identify of protests related to welfare as well as other types of protest events. So using kind of this pretty diverse range of empirical sources, I kind of are trying to use as much as I can to support the uh, various arguments that form the book.
1: Great, yeah, so we'll go into uh, you know what exactly you found out with each of those. Uh topics, but uh, that's definitely a really exciting thing about your book that, you know, as, as your opening story uh, indicates, you did go out and, you know, talk to real people and get their perspective on, you know, what, uh, what challenges they faced and, you know, how the system worked uh, for them, uh, but then um, used a lot of different um, sources of uh, quantitative data, uh, many of which, most, I guess all of which, or most of each way you basically uh, created uh, yourself or, or generated yourself from existing documents um which uh especially these days it seems like the the environment for um research uh, in person in China is getting a lot harder so uh which is really unfortunate I think for uh, oddly enough for for China because there's so many things where you know they the, even the Chinese government from its most uh you know in, in the most cynical interpretation I think it needs other people in other countries to understand um what's going on there and uh being able to be on the ground and actually talk to people um you know obviously we do find out things that are unflattering, but, um, having a more, uh, a fleshed out view and, and personalized view is important. Um, but certainly many of us are, are moving more towards the kind of research, um, the other ad sources of research that you use, you know, because there is so much more information on the internet about, uh, uh about what's going on in China that you can exploit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so now let, let's step back further. So I, you know, I, We mentioned this is about the DBAO, about this sort of uh, welfare system. Um, Tell us more about uh, how it started, um, when it started, how it works, um, or at least how it was supposed to work, and then uh, how it's actually, how it's kind of evolved um, to the present.
0: Yeah, so um, DBAO is a means-tested, non-conditional cash transfer program. So what that means is, on paper, Everyone uh, whose household per capita household income falls below a certain locally set level, which is called the DBAL line, should be eligible to receive these monthly cash subsidies that bring their uh, per capita household income to that DBAL line. The program is not conditional, so that contrasts with conditional cash transfer programs where you know, households only receive the benefit if they do certain things, like send their children to school, vaccinate their children, et cetera. D-ball is supposed to be non-conditional. It's just if you're b- below your household per capita income, below a certain line, uh, then you're supposed to get the cash benefit. It's, it's the largest such program, um, in the world in terms of population covered and based on uh, the existing research it's one of the few non-regressive social welfare programs in china so there are many other social welfare programs uh, uh, that's been put into place in the last few decades in china like health insurance but those other programs tend to privilege the wealthy over the poor and actually increase income inequality uh, so D- D- is Uh, somewhat unique in that sense that it is non-regressive and it's administered by China's civil affairs system so the Minzheng system it's funded like many other uh, social welfare programs by both the central and local government but the local governments are responsible for uh, many aspects of the um, implementation like setting the Dibao line and Dibao first the program first came about in the 1990s Uh, It was piloted in certain cities in the early to mid-1990s and then rolled out nationally um, toward the end of the 1990s. In the 2000s, it really increased in terms of the size of population coverage, but in the past few years, the number of recipients has um, generally stayed about the same. And as of 2017, there were um, about 12.6 12.6 million urban DBAL recipients. I should mention that DBAO covers both urban and rural uh, uh, regions, but the my book focuses primarily on the urban D-ball. Uh So in terms of, you know, China's population, that's slightly less than 1% of China's population who are receiving urban DBAO as of uh, 2017.
1: Okay. So, um, well, you mentioned, so it's not regressive. Um, and obviously, you know, was, was, uh, put in a plate in place at a time when a lot of the kind of social safety nets or supports that existed in the socialist system were kind of being dismantled. You know, you norm- you no longer had that that iron rice bowl of a factory job that you could inherit from your parents and you know expect to have your whole life. And so, um, you know, it's natural that they would, uh, or maybe not natural, but good that certainly that they put in uh, something to replace it. Um, but yeah. uh, if it's not regressive, you did mention that the the debow line is is set. At each local level, is that by um, by city or by province? And and how does that work? Does that mean is it adjusted by cost of living or by the the budget that each you know place happens to have available? I mean, certainly even in the U.S., you know, things like school districts, right? There's a lot of inequity that comes about because local areas have to uh, support um, public services with the budgets that they have. So if you're in a poor area, you get you get less social services. Is, is right. that an issue in China as yeah.
0: well? Uh, yeah. So uh, in um, in terms of who sets the Dibao line, the city or the prefecture uh, sets it. And then below the city level, at the county or district level, they can adjust it within a certain boundary up or down, um, depending on the locality. So that's supposed to be, you know, locally set to account for differences in cost of living. And it, if you look at the policy documents that the Ministry of Civil Affairs has put out over time, there's um they're trying to push localities to have a more standardized way in which they set the Deball line. But what really happens is that in all almost all localities, the Deball line is pegged to minimum wage and unemployment insurance. And it always goes minimum wage. And lower than minimum wage is unemployment insurance and lower than unemployment insurance is the D-ball line. And so in reality, there's a lot of historical kind of path dependency to the level of the D-ball line and changing the D-ball line usually necessitates changing both unemployment insurance and minimum wage.
1: Okay. So they're all kind of linked together. Right. Um, and at least nominally going by local cost of living, although I'd imagine there there may be some pressures on, on local governments that Uh, never seem to have quite as much cash as they'd like um, on hand to to keep it lower if they are having trouble paying for other things.
0: Exactly. And so I found a lot of disconnect between the D-ball line and who actually receives benefits. Um, It's not the case that everyone whose household, whose income falls below the D-ball line receives those benefits. In fact, there's been research the overtime done by um, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, China's Bureau of Statistics, that shows uh, something like 60 to 80% of households whose income falls below the locally set line do not receive d And so that really echoes the kind of story of the Wang family that I kind of told at the beginning of the session.
1: Yeah, so why don't we get into that, right? So it's supposed to be, you know, at least on the sort of prefectural Uh, level, something like universal basic income, but you're saying 60 to 80% of people who uh, ought to, according to the means testing, be getting it are, are denied. Um, and even, and not just because they don't know how to fill out the forms or to ask, but, but in, in some cases, like the one you you gave, they are literally going up and saying, here I am, I'm below the line, help me out. And and they're getting a no. So, Mm -hmm. so why is that? And, uh, and if that's, if they're not just taking care of the poorest, um, then, what what are they doing with this policy?
0: Yeah. So I would say they are taking care of the poorest, but specific subsets of the poorest. Um, and what I found is that, and what I argue in the book, is that there's two different logics of distribution uh, facing local governments that have this hard budget constraint, as you as you kind of, have uh, brought up. So local governments don't have unlimited funds. They're not able to fully fund the DIBAL program. And so they give DVAL to those who kind of meet that, who whose income do fall below the DVAL line, but of two types. So the first type is to give DVAL to individuals who cannot participate in the labor market. This can be the elderly, uh, the disabled, whose household per capita income falls below this line, and because of the hard budget constraint, that means. Not every, not all impoverished households can be funded, and if you're poor and you can work, then you're turned away from the devol program. Uh, that kind of, I when when I was first doing my field work, I heard that logic explained to me many times. Um, but what I find is that there's actually a second kind of logic to who gets devol. So again, it's people who incomes are falling below the uh, devol line. But instead of being those who cannot participate in the labor market, the second group of people are those who the Chinese government sees as potential future threats to political order, um, and the core programmatic features of the policy, new policy, are never violated, um, but they're given to specific populations, in particular, targeted what are called targeted populations or call who are individuals the Chinese government doesn't have sufficient sufficient evidence to prosecute for, for crimes, but who are placed under quite intensive surveillance and sometimes other control measures so that they can be monitored and so that the regime can preempt them from doing anything um, criminal, quote unquote, in the future. Uh, so... The, what this means is that if you belong to a targeted population and you're poor, your per capita household income is below that D-Ball line. Local administrators will work very hard to get you um, to get you D-ball. and that's what um, was happening with the Lee family, who were, you know, were very proactively um, assisted in getting getting the benefit.
1: So, if you're you're saying if you're uh, if you're a troublemaker, you'll be rewarded. Is that kind of? Uh what I'm hearing.
0: So if the government thinks you will be a troublemaker in the future, you are given these material benefits. But I think there's kind of two key parts of that. One is, um, D-ball benefits. The D-ball line is quite low. This is a very minimal benefit. It's extremely helpful to uh, impoverished households, but it is not a, uh, kind of very robust material reward. So, um, even though households are getting this material benefit, in many ways, this additional kind of material resources are not allowing for something like social mobility, but rather keeping the poor poor, if that makes sense. That's one thing. The second thing is um, who are kind of potential troublemakers? It, the targeted population program is an attempt by the Chinese government to be able to identify future threats to the regime like Minority Report, whether you've seen the movie or read the short story, Uh, but there are no psychics. And so most of the, many of the people who are placed into this category of targeted population are those who have um, uh, some distinguishing characteristic in the past. In particular, they've been released from uh, prison or re-education reform or some sort of detention. Uh, So it's, so we kind of these two points. One is to define what is a troublemaker, and second is to make clear that giving, being given a material benefit, is not necessarily a reward um, in the sense that rewards are kind of helping you elevate yourself in some way. That's not necessarily happening with this material benefit.
1: So it's not the it's not the Chinese version of the sort of legendary American welfare queen who's collecting social <laughs> benefits and, and living the high life.
0: It's not. Although I would say in China, there is opposition to ball because of that perception that it will decrease incentives to work. And so that's why I think you have that first um, kind of logic, which is if you're poor, but you seem like you can work, then you're not going to get Ball.
1: Can you give us a sense, like how, how low is it? And obviously, even because cost of living is very different from China to here and also Varies hugely from like city to co- city to city or with the countryside, but like, is, could you give us a reference point or example of like how how you know uh, yeah how bad is it or how little is it?
0: Yeah, so I think something on average for urban debal is something like two dollars a day, um, but at, when you look across cities, what you'll find is that the debal line tends to be lower than average household expenditures on food, like food only. Um so Debaw is supposed to be covering, you know, food, clothing, shelter, like very basic living expenses. And that is that total amount is below what a household in that same city would spend just on food alone.
1: Okay. So yeah, that's that's a great uh a great comparison point. And and two dollars a day is, you know, one of the one of the various global standards for poverty that's uh that's been used as well. So that's uh, a good reference point that you know that's the same standard of like really really dire poverty that we use you know in looking at uh, you know uh, much less prosperous countries in Africa let, you know let alone in China which you know on the whole has has experienced really really uh, rapid growth and, and people are a lot better off so yeah. yeah so not not great but but I guess not not surprising to hear that in China it's like everywhere there's always a sense that you know do those people really deserve it um, right and uh, and so you're saying in a sense the the government is kind of going in and like, you know, someone shows up asking for money and they give them the once over. It's like, yeah, you know, you still got both your legs, get out there and, you know, right. get yourself a job. Right. That's right. Um, but then, but then if that same person shows up, but is you know, an ex con or something like that, then, um, which, you know, I mean, that's, that's an issue, you know, it's, it's hard for those for people with that kind of situation, uh, in, in any country to, to find work for, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, um, so yeah, so that sort of
0: yeah, you know, so not, not, not completely yeah.
1: unfamiliar logic, even, right. even from a U.S. perspective.
0: Yeah, and I think um, the maybe a difference is that, and I, I should say there is kind of it absolutely makes sense from a kind of social policy perspective to give resources to those who are um, have been formally incarcerated to try to reintegrate them into society. Um, but I think the kind of second logic of distribution is slightly different than that. And even the kind of example that you give that someone who is ex con would approach uh, the program administrator and ask for the benefit, that doesn't really happen. Um, usually, what happens is that uh, these targeted populations are already under kind of surveillance and being managed by a committee. And what, if they realize that this uh, household can uh, be eligible for DBAL, And any other benefit, then those resources from the state are kind of leveraged um, as a means of what I argue in the book as a means of exerting more control and getting more uh, transparency and information about. Yeah. So tell me about that. You you use the phrase
1: repressive assistance. I mean, when you say like, oh, there's a committee that watches over you after you get out of jail or whatever, and then uh, says, hey, here's some, you know, some social benefits you could access that sounds super nice. And, you know, there's, there's people who, who are very well-meaning who that's their job, you know, in, uh, in every major uh, city and country um, in the, like the U S. So, so why is this, why is this an aspect of uh, repression? I think you also emphasize that it's not just, it's not even, I mean, aside from just being, you know, a very penurious, like small amount um, you, you don't, you don't see it as primarily a co-optation kind of thing where you're Mm -hmm. paying off people who otherwise would make trouble. It's, uh, it's, Yeah. So tell yeah. me more about repressive assistance.
0: Yeah. And I, I would say, I think a lot of the people who are carrying out the program, they they see themselves as doing good. They don't see themselves as um, agent of a violent state that's engaged in repression. So why do I say that the provision of d ball to try to preempt disorder is repressive? Um, so yes, we usually associate repression with Violence, physical sanctions, or at the very least, some sort of physical force, like intimidation or surveillance. Um, but I think we also need to remember that kind of the I why why do why is repression used? Um, if we go to older definitions of repression, it's any action by a group which raises a contender's costs of action, and in particular, collective action. So what repression does, and traditionally we think it happens through uh, by generating fear, is that it makes someone less able to take a particular action that they actually want to take. And the why I call this form of assistance repression is, that, um, is because the provision of these material benefits creates repeated and frequent interactions between the government and the target of repression and at the end of the day, makes those individuals less able to take actions that they would otherwise um, ha- have pursued. And I think this is where it differs from co-optation. And I, I recognize that cooptation, the term cooptation is used very differently by different people. But I, we can think of co-optation in a more kind of uh, basic sense as an exchange where, uh, a, a target accepts benefits and willingly forgoes some specific activities. So a target will decide, okay, I'm going to take these benefits because their value is worth some change in my behavior. In contrast with repressive assistance, the distribution of benefits, as I mentioned, makes recipients uh, more legible or visible to, to the government more uh, dependent and uh, more obligated to the state. And ultimately, they're not just less willing, but less able to engage in the activities that the government doesn't want them to engage in. And so it's there's nothing, there's no exchange going on. And I think that goes back to uh, kind of the the situation in which these people get the benefits. They are often just offer the benefits, and when you're offered the benefits, they're not in a position to turn it down, nor is it really clear um, what action they're supposed to forego if they receive those benefits. But it's after receiving the benefits and in the interactions that follow with the state, that they are kind of um, less able to take actions um, and less able to act in ways that they might otherwise have uh, acted in had they not been a recipient of the benefit.
1: So so flesh that out for me, like make it more concrete. So there's some person who the the party is concerned will be a troublemaker. And so they, they've they been keeping an eye on them anyway and kind of watching them uh, through you know, various methods at their disposal. And then they show up at at his house and say, okay, now we're gonna give you uh, you know this two dollar a day benefit, um, and how does how does that increase their ability to monitor them? Because yeah. they have to like come yeah. back and like register to like collect the money.
0: Yeah. Or... So um. So even just to apply, so it's like oh, there's this someone could come to your house and say there's actually this great benefit. You can get money. You can get um, these. You can get free exams. You can get rice before the Chinese New Year. Like there are all these little benefits that you can get. And all you have to do is uh, give me all your information about employment, how much money you make from any particular job, uh, what everyone in your household does. Um, We'll also interview your neighbors to ask more about you. Um, We'll post information about you in the neighborhood. So anyone else who (laughs) knows information about you can share it with us. And then we'll come check on you. Frequently to make sure you're doing okay. Um, so, so there must be a
1: lot of social stigma if it's like and you're not just getting your welfare check. It's like they're they're saying, okay, here's your welfare check, and we're going to put a big sign on your door or at the you know on the corner of your street saying, by the way, this is getting guy is getting welfare check and this is how much he's getting, and it's because he's so darn poor. Look here.
0: There is a lot. So there's been work um, by Chinese academics as well as uh, others in the U.S. like Dorothy Sollinger. Who show that there's a, a, a huge amount of stigma attached to being a DBOL recipient? Because in the application stage, there are these notices that are um, posted so that if anyone has objections, they can raise them. And then if you're a DBOL recipient, in every neighborhood, there's a bulletin board of all DBOL recipients, their name, sometimes the amount of um, cash transfers that they're receiving. So it's quite marginalizing and stigmatizing. Um, but again, it's not necessarily clear when, you know, the, the, these extremely marginal, already marginalized and impoverished households, when they're approached with this, do they really have the ability to say, no, I don't want this extra cash that you're offering, even though it's very low, I'm going to turn it away. Um, I think most households are not able to, to say that because it's hard, it, kind of at the onset it's not clear that you see all of the downstream consequences of taking that benefit.
1: Right. So it's yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a weird i just thinking it's like kind of a weird combination of like getting welfare and being put on the sex offender registry or something. Like right. suddenly everyone knows who you are and yes. draw your their attention is drawn to you. Okay. Um, all right. So let us talk more about the the methodology. And actually, you know, I think uh, you have you have assembled five different data sets for this study. Um and uh, probably hard in, in the time we have to even get through all those. So um, why don't we jump ahead to um, the one you assembled about protests and tell me like you know, uh, what you did with that and then why you, um, you know how, how that how that analysis of protests relates to uh, this uh, devout as a tool of social control and then the conclusions you drew from that.
0: Yeah. Um, so what we so it's kind of a related but somewhat separate project um, in the sense that I think even putting aside this Brook project for a country like China or kind of, uh, kind of many other countries, social mobilization, protest, collective action, understanding how that happens, when that happens, the frequency at which it happens is really important for understanding um, that country, both for kind of how socially, politically, economically. But we really lack any sort of fine-grained information uh, about protests and collective action um, in the China in China this is true I think many people have been working to try to ameliorate the situation and we are one of those kind of groups of people who wanted to get more information about protests and the way we approached it is to use social media data um, recognizing that with the kind of explosion of digital media platforms in China, protesters turn to these platforms to share information about their kind of contention and protest events. And so taking advantage of that, we created a um, classifier or a classification system which takes social media posts, both the text of the post as well as associated images, if there are are any, and using... um, different deep learning algorithms identifies uh, social media posts that talk about offline on the ground um, protests and collective action events. We then, so which, uh-huh. which, uh, yeah.
1: which social media were you using? Cause I mean, we used Weibo. Okay. Um,
0: so we uh, use Weibo data um, because it, it is public. And so it's much easier to collect than something like Weixin. Um, also, with the recognition that for many protesters, they're trying to get broader uh, attention for their causes and for their demands, and so a platform like Weibo that is open is much more um, has the kind of characteristics that would allow for that uh, better allow for that attention.
1: Right. I was definitely thinking that right because because WeChat or WeChat is uh, is these days like you know everyone you talk to like that's the dominant platform that's how everyone communicates but um but i see your point that uh you know if your goal is to draw attention to yourself and and gather support and and put pressure on um the you know, on the government to to deal with whatever your grievance is then um then uh then then using weibo um uh which is to, for non-china people is sort of china's twitter um is how it's usually summarized that that's uh, that's going to get out there, so it can be, you know, recirculated most easily, and, and everyone can hear about it.
0: Yeah, and we do find um, kind of limitations. Uh, so our data, the the resulting data, which um, uh, covers a several year span and covers almost all regions of China, do, do not cover uh, Western minority, ethnic minority regions, and so there could be different reasons for that. Uh, it's because we were looking at ha- uh, Chinese of chinese language content it could also be because there are much more stringent limitations on use of internet and social media in those regions but for kind of these various reasons the data that we have is much more applicable to kind of han chinese uh, regions and uh of china
1: yeah i mean it's it's unfortunate you know given uh the level of concern and, and awareness now there is now about um you know the the what's happening in Western China that unfortunately a lot of the time it's when you're doing research on China, you've kind of got to decide, like, am I going to look at kind of the main Han part of China, you know, the central and Eastern China, um, which is kind of one thing, or am I going to look at the other parts, which yeah right. are going to have a lot less data and they just face uh, a much, much more repressive environment. And, and yeah, it's a lot harder to, to figure out uh, what's going on there. So, so often we do, end up end up segmenting them and, and kind of neglecting them if we're focusing on the you know the majority population.
0: yeah 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 I think that's definitely a trade-off. Um, and I think so and, and one that we kind of we were very transparent about when we were putting this data set together and where kind of it reveals that even though we have so much data on social media there's going to be systematic biases. And so, even though protest event detection from traditional media is very limited, those types of data sources can actually um, be very complementary and reveal different types of kind of protest events that you wouldn't see on Chinese social media. Uh, And so, for the purposes of the book, I use this resulting data to try to understand the effects of distributing. Debal in a very, in this instrumental way to preempt disorder. And so I look at, um, at the kind of city prefecture level, cities which have more policies linking DBAL provision to targeted populations. Is there a difference between those cities um, in terms of the level of protests overall, as well as protests related to welfare? And what I find is that in cities where there are more policies that kind of link, devol to this kind of preemptive, preempting threats to political order type situation, we actually see more uh, welfare-related protests. And the reason for that is that it seems this type of distribution, this logic of distribution that's to preempt threats, leads to backlash. And people are backlashing not because they're upset about uh, anything repressive, but rather they are um, upset about who is deserving or not deserving of welfare benefits. Uh, And this is, you know, so I'm seeing this pattern in the social media data, but also in my kind of neighborhood survey-based data, where in neighborhoods where more of DBAO benefits are more likely given to, for example, ex-prisoners, there are a lot more complaints, both individual and collective, to the neighborhood administrators about whether that's fair distribution, whether those recipients are deserving or who else should be deserving of, of these benefits.
1: So that, that logical chain makes sense to me, but then I guess, so, you know, the other, the other issue is, especially at the aggregate level, how can you say that it, that the, it doesn't go the other direction that, you know, if there's more places that knew that had, or that were anticipating more, social disruption said oh shoot we've got a problem or maybe they even already had something going on or maybe they just knew it was coming down the road and then they then they say okay we've got to you know forget about giving money to everyone deserving because we can't anyway so let's just focus on the ones we really think are gonna be trouble
0: yeah no it definitely could go the other way or uh, probably there's some sort of feedback system um, Mm -hmm. that that's going on Um, and one of the other things that I talk about in the book is kind of how do we arrive how did china arrive at this situation where mm-hmm. a program that's supposed to be building a social safety net becomes used so instrumentally to kind of maintain stability what what the chinese government calls stability and there i think it has to do with how Overall, in China, the kind of understanding of what stability means, as well as how the government pursues it, um, has changed in the past few decades. But of course, I think different regions in China uh, are there. There's variation between different regions, so it could very well be the case that kind of this current this particular mindset around stability is stronger in um, some regions in China than others.
1: So, um, so how does uh, I mean? In, in other other people have been talking about, um, you know, there's there's the whole in the Xi Jinping era. There's been um, obviously a, a greater, let's say, focus on stability, or you know, more increased repression, um, you know, depending on what context. But also, uh, going along with this, at least, um, you know, some serious people argue that there's been uh, a continuing development of sort of rule, you know, rule by law, right. You know, documenting things, formalizing things, leaving less things in the discretion of local leaders, you know, in many cases, because in the past they could be, you know, they might be corrupt or they might, uh, kind of overreact or to, to achieve some goal that they interpret as being desirable by the, by the central government. And so they've tried to formalize stuff, but here this seems like a movement, Kind of away from that, like they had a, something with a very clear formal rules, and then and then just people kind of drifted on their own, like saying, "Oh, hey, I can just use this." Uh, no, to-
0: so so um, so I actually think both of the things you highlight are at work. So um, well, I mentioned before, the dibal program is run by the Ministry of Civil Affairs. It's definitely not the case that the Ministry of Civil Affairs decided one day they would distribute DBAO, um in this particular way to preempt threats or stability. And it's also not the case that low governments decided, hey, let's buy off people D-Ball. Um, I th- the reason why D-Ball is distributed in this way, I think runs much broader and deeper and has both to do with kind of the under the kind of emphasis on stability, as well as kind of this, let's stick to the rules sort of um, orientation. So I think most people, when we talk about stability and kind of where does that term come from in China, many people might think about Deng Xiaoping and, you know, a particular quote of his from 1989, where he says something like, you know, to China's problems, the priority is stability. If we don't have stability, nothing can be achieved and everything that will be achieved is will be lost. But I think what's maybe harder to remember is that at that point when Don was talking about this, the ultimate objective was not stability. It was economic modernization. And stability was kind of uh, seen as a necessary condition. Uh, And so the idea was you have economic reform. That economic reform is going to lead to social unrest. That unrest can hinder economic progress. And so you need to manage that unrest with developing a kind of systematic social security system, like a social safety net. Um, but it, and I think that kind of viewpoint of the relationship between economic development, stability, and social security was supported by the type of protests that happened in China in the 1990s, like mostly laid off workers, pensioners who were protesting. But then what I find is that after the Falun Gong protest in 1999, which was not about economic rights, but more about social political rights, the ccp changes its thinking about stability and in particular instead of thinking about kind of stability instability as a result of economic development economic development becomes seen as a way of maintaining stability right that's the whole performance legitimacy idea mm-hmm. uh, but but that's like a really fundamental shift in the causal story instead of thinking economic development will lead to instability because privatization is hard for example we now the now the story is you must have economic development to have stability. So like that's a totally different kind of causal story and idea. Um, But but what I find is that this new idea that you need, the the goal is now stability and you need economic growth as a condition for stability kind of takes hold throughout the 2000s. And it's also accompanied by how the Chinese government pursued stability. Um, So there's this, policy of comprehensive management of public security. So uh, So after Tiananmen Square that came about and so it was a replacement of strike hard campaigns. But after Falun Gong protests in 1999, this strategy of comprehensive management of public security expands beyond the security apparatus. So basically there's a policy document that says uh, you can't we can't we can no longer rely on public security to ensure stability but instead all functional bureaucracies need to be involved in ensuring stability so that in- specifically named is the civil affairs system but also others like labor social security education health family planning like every functional bureaucracy is involved in stability and so that's why with something like deball nothing on paper is changed about the program the formal uh Kind of rules of the program are never violated, so that's where the kind of law, rule of law, uh, kind of orientation comes in. But instead, what you have is policy documents from the security apparatus saying anyone who's applicable, who, who's like eligible for benefits, but who are being, you know, sent in community reeducation or targeted population should receive the benefit. So it's that kind of a changing priority of who should be first in line to get these benefits given hard budget constraints, which changes the allocation of resources in the program without ever changing or violating the formal rules.
1: So the so the D-Bow line is not really, I mean, is it is, how is it phrased in the laws? Like is it supposed to be a guarantee or is it more like if you're below this, then maybe I mean in practice it sounds like if you're below this, then maybe if we feel like it, we'll give you, we'll give you this money, but you're not guaranteed it. Um, But but how does actually on
0: paper on paper it is if you're below this line then you should get the benefit. I think the the ambiguity comes in that many local governments have added additional kind of conditions, requirements, assessments on top of that. So it's like, how do you assess income? Should assets be like for example, like assets? Should assets be calculated as part of income? Usually you, we would say no, right? But a lot of local governments have also said, well, income is really hard to assess, and especially for people who are working informally. So let's look at their assets. And some, I've seen policy documents in some locality. is like if you have a car, or if you have this particular type of asset, then no matter what we think your income is, you're not eligible. So there are a lot of these kind of layers to eligibility um, that uh, make it a little bit more complicated exactly who is below the line set by the local
1: government. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's generally true. Again, something yeah. is familiar if you work on China and less familiar if you're not, that like there's, there's all these grand plans at the top level, but there's a lot of flexibility um, at the local level, which is, which is understood by everyone as being, you know, kind of basically legitimate, like you know, right. a, a, this weird kind of quasi-federalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, All right. So, so it's interesting you, you put this, you put, you know uh, I mean, it's always a little bit arbitrary when you um, make, you know, critical junctures or dividing lines or whatever, but uh, you know, you put the 1999 Falun Gong um, protests kind of as, as one, Um, you know, in a lot of things people are looking at now often, something around 2012 you know when Xi Jinping came into power is is often viewed as a dividing line how do how do you see because your research kind of spanned that um that transition from from who to Xi so do you see is um yeah anyway like do you feel like the the trends you saw in your book have just pretty much continued from the early Xi period or or have they been exacerbated or changed like how, how is how is it things developing
0: Yes, yeah, so I would say one important thing is that the trends that I see started absolutely before the C period. Um, I like one example would be the targeted population program. That's actually been in place since 1950. Of uh, the exact categories of who should be under surveillance has obviously changed, um, but the. This is an active program before um, Xi Jinping came into power. And so instead of seeing 2012 as a kind of change in kind, if anything, I would say it is a kind of change in, potentially a change in degree. Um, and there are two aspects to that. One is that Xi has made poverty alleviation a really big um, part of his kind of agenda. Most of it has been focused on rural poverty alleviation. I think Mm -hmm. there's some question of, you know, how will urban poverty and kind of programs like the urban D uh, fit into that going forward. Um, so, so I think kind of there's this overall emphasis, renewed emphasis on alleviating poverty at the kind of programmatic policy level, Uh, and then at the same time, every, kind of, there's a kind of general perception that there's a renewed emphasis on stability and the importance of stability. But there, I think it's really about just more, more of the same. Um, comprehensive management of public security has not gone away. If anything, it's become more expansive. Um, and so, I would say the kind of things that I identify in the book are not appearing at not appearing after 2012 but definitely um trends that we see continuing from before
1: okay um no that makes sense and and yeah i think sometimes on the one hand xi jinping does seem to be a very different character from what people before him but there's also ways in which i think people kind of overstate how things um now can sometimes uh feel more new, but actually if you, if you've known China for a while and you, you know, look at the development, you see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of commonalities or a lot of common, common themes, which maybe are implemented differently in different eras, even if the, maybe sometimes the goals are the same. Um, so, uh, what about, so, uh, you know, just actually this week as, as we're recording, there was, um, a huge thing with, uh, um, DD's IPO, uh, well, after DD's IPO, then uh, new regulations, which I mean, are all still developing. So I won't actually explain them. but new, new regulations putting more control over um, all the digital data that, you know, Chinese companies are now ga- able to gather about Chinese citizens. Um, so let me just take that as an opportunity to lead in, like, you know, this this surveillance you're talking about where like you have to come hat in hand to like collect your check or your physical cash or whatever it is, um, you know, each, each month or week. And then they, know get to ask you questions and like post a sign on your street about where you've been and what you've done and, and all these kinds of things that seems very old school right so now you know if we have cameras in every corner and your phone's going to track you anyway then uh you know is that is that changing this system or will it change the system what do you see happening and uh, to the extent that you're willing to guess or forecast what how do you how do you think that will evolve
0: yeah, so actually, that's what I—that I, was one thing, kind of, to your previous questions that that I was gonna say that if there's any kind of more sharp change, it is that this kind of digital surveillance, and while it's coincided with the rise of C, you know, it's a technology change. Yeah, it's yeah. So I think changes in you know digital technology, both for surveillance as well as for uh, kind of. Uh, Financial technologies, that definitely does have the uh, potential to change how things are happening. Um, But I'm not sure they will change the kind of fundamental political dynamics underlying why we see the particular characteristics of, for example, d that we do. Um, Because I think the political incentives will still be there as long as the Chinese government focuses so heavily on stability, um, but but now it's possible to just have much more um, data and to put kind of larger portions of the population under um, under surveillance and monitoring. I think one open question that I really don't know the answer to is is there a substitution of digital surveillance for this kind of grassroots um, human intensive surveillance i'm not sure if that's the case but i should also say that in kind of the book that i do what i find is that the human level surveillance is really uneven between different neighborhoods um, and different communities so maybe one change is that when you have digital surveillance there's much more consistency uh, across neighborhoods districts and cities
1: yeah that makes sense um but yeah, no, no matter what, there'll be some surveillance. It's just a question of how, how is it going to be implemented? Um, all right. So yeah, that's, uh, it's been really uh, great talking to you about this. Uh, just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you're, you're finished with the book that's out. Um, I know you have a lot of other projects going on. Um, maybe you could just give us a sense of, uh, of what uh, some of them are. Do you have any, any next book project or do you just have another 50 articles in the works? <laughs>
0: uh I've one, maybe there will be projects that turn into books. um, But I think for the most part, um, I'm working on papers. There's some group of kind of one area is continuing to focus on censorship and propaganda and how the Chinese government is controlling different types of digital media platforms. We're looking at one project, looking at Douyin or Chinese TikTok and um, Bilibili and other sort of video streaming platforms. Um, and also then I'm also starting to look at how Chinese government is trying to influence opinion outside of um, China's borders. Um, mm-hmm. the, the one separate distinct area of research that might become a book, but we don't, I don't know, is um, looking at public opinion in China, how preferences are bundled, what influences preferences, both looking at the general population. But we have um, one particular project that's following Chinese college students in China and in the U.S., ideally, hopefully from freshman year through graduation, currently they're juniors. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's an observational study of how their attitudes, opinions, and behaviors are changing during this pretty formative period of time. And so that we're, we're writing papers on that, but there, maybe that'll become a book at some point. Um, and then there's another kind of group of research that comes out of the book, um, but ties in with my other research, looking at kind of the intersection between propaganda and repression and these kind of the strategies that the Chinese government uses to, um, influence, uh, influence public opinion and behaviors.
1: Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's really exciting. Um, that's, that's about all the time we have. Uh, so thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed having you having this chance to, to talk more about your book.
0: Thank you so much for having me.